good evening. Thank you so much for joining us here at New Hope Church. We're officially in the middle of the Christmas season, which is a season of giving. And right now, we're going to get ready to receive our tithes and offerings. Like I was saying before, we're in the middle of this giving season. And kind of brought up the question to me, why do we give to God? So I was looking it up, and it says in Proverbs and it says in Leviticus that 10% of our income should be given to God and should be declared holy. And with that, God takes that and furthers his kingdom and, you know, uh, helps the work of the church be done. But there's more to it than just that. Because when we give, it's not just a gift. It's not just a monetary donation or anything like that. But we give out of obedience to the Lord. See, when we give, we also give our heart to the Lord. And that's what the Lord wants. That's what can further his kingdom. It's the grateful and cheerful heart of the giver. So with that being said, we're going to pray over the tithes and offerings. And if you are uh, watching Church Online for the first time, or if you're um, experiencing this and you don't call this your home church, or this isn't where you are uh, normally come from, don't feel obligated to give. But for those of us that do call this the place where we're fed, this is our opportunity to give unto the Lord. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray over this tithe and offering. Lord, I pray that you would bless it and bless the hearts of the giver. And take this and use it in the ways that only you can. Build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to continue in our series where we're exploring through the Bible. And tonight, we have a great message brought to us by Pastor Lindsay from the book of Romans. So we're going to take a look at this video that explains the higher points in the book of Romans. Let's take a look. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel, and he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire, telling people about the risen King Jesus, and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions, and the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension, so that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified, 
and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the letter is designed to have four main movements, but it's unified as one long-flowing exploration of the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, first of all, reveals God's righteousness, and then it also creates a new humanity, which fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. In this video, we're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. 
Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family. And it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters 1 through 4 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Well, good evening, church family. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. Hey, if you're enjoying these Bible Project videos, would you just, across the the platforms and in the chat, would you throw up some fire emojis? I personally, I love these videos because I think that they, um, and they're just so clear in helping us to understand the major themes of each book of the Bible. And I am especially grateful for tonight's video because the book of Romans let me Let me just tell you, I'm going to be real honest, and when I found out I was teaching on the book of Romans, I did what any good procrastinator does, and I ignored it. Oh, didn't see it. (laughs) Ignored it, ignored it, right? Just me? Okay, liars. All right, anyway. um, But uh, a few weeks ago, I was like, okay, I got to talk on this. Like, there's no getting out of it. And um, I started asking the Lord, what do you want me to talk about? Now, Romans, the reason why I'm intimidated by the book of Romans is because Romans is one of the heaviest theological books in the Bible. And there are so many good truths and so many gems that come out of Romans. And so I kept asking the Lord, what do you want me to talk about, God? And as I started studying, I was like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I just, I felt like he was quiet for a really long time, probably because I procrastinated for so long. And he was just like, nope, I'll just make you wait. But one morning I woke up and I clearly heard him say, talk about the war between the spirit and the flesh. And so tonight I want you to know right up front, we, there are two videos actually, um, but we are not gonna get to watch the second video because of time. And so I just wanna encourage you 
please take some time and watch the video. It's so good. So watch the video. And I also want to put this disclaimer out there. Because the book of Romans is so extensive, I cannot do it justice in one night. And so just know that we are going to hone in on chapter 7 tonight. We're going to hone in on the back half of chapter 7, where we are going to talk about the, the war between flesh and spirit. And so tonight's message is called The War Within. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 7. In Romans, that's where we're going to camp. Now, as we get ready to jump in, I want you to keep in mind what we just saw in the video. Okay, I know that was a lot. <laughs> I get it. But keep that in mind, and, um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more. So Paul, he's writing to the book, or he's, he's writing to the book. <laughs> he's writing to the church in Rome. Right now, let's understand this. Rome was the capital, was the center of the Roman Empire. And anything that happened in Rome became known universally. Not only was it the center of the Roman Empire, it was the center of the inhabited world of that time. And so like I said, anything that happened in Rome, everybody knew about it. And I believe Paul understood that when he wrote this letter to the church. I believe he understood that if they can get it right, this is going to be a game changer. And the world is going to flip upside down because of how centrally located this church was. And so Paul is not writing to correct their theology. He does that a lot to different churches, but the Church of Rome is actually pretty theologically sound, so he's not writing to correct their theology. He is writing to give them some practical, practical instruction. And um, like the video said, it is his fullest explanation of the gospel his fullest explanation of the gospel. Now, what I also want us to understand as we jump in tonight is that Paul is writing a letter. He's writing a letter to the church. So like be, it would be like, I can't talk tonight. This is, this is gonna be fun, guys. Okay, so he's writing a letter to the church. Okay, so it's just like if I were to write a letter to you, I would put, dear Travis, and I would write my letter. I wouldn't put chapters in it, unless maybe it was really long, you know, but I wouldn't put verse numbers. So when he wrote the book, it didn't have any of that. And just like a letter, if we were to jump in right in the middle of the letter, we'd probably be lost. We probably wouldn't understand what's going on. And so because we're jumping in in chapter 7, what I want us to do is I want to catch us up so that we can understand a little bit better of what Paul was talking about. So we just watched the video that explained 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4. Now in, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul introduces this idea that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And he brings about this argument, and then he realizes, hey, someone might ask, well then, it's okay for me to keep sinning because that means God's grace will just abound more and more in my life. So it's okay for me to do that. And this is his response in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Now when Paul says by no means, he is, this, he's like, that is absurd. This is ridiculous. Like, how can you even have that thought? And he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, when we're born again, and when we believe in Jesus for our salvation and for our rescuing, our relationship to sin permanently changes. Our relationship to sin permanently changes. We have died to sin, 
And if you have died to something, it just doesn't make sense to keep living in something that you've died to. It's kind of like this. Go with me for a second. You know those pair of shoes that don't fit, but you love? Or those pants that are just like, too tight, but like you love them and you don't want to give them up, and so you think, I can do it. Think skinny, think skinny, suck it in. Like, I got it, I got it, I can get it on, right? Obviously, if you're thin, you don't have this problem, so you can think about shoving your foot in a shoe that doesn't fit, right? So you're thinking, like, this is what we do. We're trying to, like, put ourselves back into something that doesn't fit because obviously everybody knows those pants don't fit, those shoes don't fit. They know, it's clear. It's clear to them that it just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? And it's time to say, bye girl, those pants are dead, or those shoes are done. Like, it's done. It doesn't make sense like our sin. I know it's not exactly the same, but it doesn't make sense to go back. It doesn't make sense to keep on living in something that you have died to. And so when Paul is making these statements about sin and how grace is abounding more and more, he's not referring to our daily struggle with sin. I just want to make this clear because we're going to get to that in a second. But what he's referring to is a one-time event that was completed in the past through Jesus. That's what he's referring to. And this is the premise of chapter 6, and he goes on to explain and support this idea. Now, before we move on to chapter 7, where we're going to be, I want to touch on a phrase that Paul uses. Paul brings in this idea of our old self. He uses this term, old self. Now, according to theologian John MacArthur, when Paul uses this Greek word, it doesn't mean old as in years, but he's referring to something that is old and useless. Our old self has died with Christ. It is useless. MacArthur says that although our, our old self is dead, Sin retains a foothold in our temporal flesh or our unredeemed humanness with its corrupted desires. Simply put, even though our old self is dead, even though our old self has died with Christ, we're still not perfect. We're not perfect until we go to be with Jesus. And if you forget this, or if you think you're perfect, feel free to ask those closest to you. I'm sure they will be very quick to remind you. However, wives, this is not an opportunity for you to look at your husband and say, hey, you heard, huh? You ain't perfect. I told you. It's not, okay? Husbands, same thing. That'll cause you fights. So anyway, don't, let's not get it twisted, but let's remember that. That's the mind frame we, we have going into chapter 7. And we're going to start um, chapter 7 in verse 15. It's a little long, so bear with me. I'm going to read it to you. And it says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. And this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. It is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul isn't talking about two um, competing natures. In fact, he's just talking about one new nature that we have in Christ that is still being perfected, which is why there's this constant battle. And you can write that in your notes, that the war within is constant. The war within is constant. And I think it's safe to say that no matter how old you are or how long you've been walking with Jesus, we all experience this internal battle. We all experience this internal battle in various degrees. And I know it's not super encouraging, uh, but if you've ever wondered, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? Why can't I get it right? At least now you know why. And you know you're not crazy. You're just in the process of being made perfect. You're in the process of looking more and more like Jesus. And now I want to make something clear here as well, is that Paul isn't denying the responsibility that he has as a sinner. He's not denying that. He isn't denying his responsibility in doing wrong, but he is recognizing that as he sins, he acts against his nature as a new man in Jesus. It's very important for us to understand that because as Christians, we must own up to our sins. Yet there's, there's this dynamic of us needing to also recognize that the impulse to sin doesn't come from who we really are in Jesus. And so Paul recognizes this war within himself. And look at his response in verse 24. He says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that, has, that is subjected to death? Now, there's a few things we see happening in this verse. First, Paul recognizes how wretched he is. But not just that, he recognizes his need to be rescued. His need for saving right, which is just a simple way to say his need for salvation, his need for Jesus. You can write this in your notes, is the closer to God we get, the more we recognize our wretchedness. The more we recognize our wretchedness, because the closer we get to perfection, the closer we get to God, we should begin to recognize how far we are from it and how desperately we need saving. The closer we get to him by reading his word and spending time with him, the more it serves as a mirror and reveals our true heart condition. And so I want to um, bring this, I want to bring our attention to this word picture that Paul uses. And um, this, this is crazy. So Paul uses this phrase, body that is subjected to death. And in other versions, he uses, it says body of death. Now, back in the day, back in that day, it was their custom. It was a custom of some tyrants who were using, they were using this as punishment. Is, um, and some scholars will say that it was only a punishment for murderers, but it was a punishment nonetheless back in their day that was used. And what they would do is they would tie a dead body to a person. They would tie a dead body to a man back to back, and this man would have to walk around like that, tied to this rotting, putrid, decaying body. And this is the picture that Paul gives us. 
This is the words that he chooses to use, is this body of death. And this is what he's referring to, being tied to this dead corpse on your back, decaying and rotting and smelling. And he says this, that even though we are dead to sin, it is though we walk around with this dead body strapped to us. It's still there, still lingers, still reminds us of our wretchedness. Now, Paul writes this in no way to bring condemnation. None at all, because if you read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it is clear that there is no condemnation in Christ. There is none. And so if you make a mistake, when we sin, sin is a fancy word that simply means missing the mark. When we miss the mark, there is no condemnation. Sometimes we feel shame or we feel like we just feel so down and guilty because of that. But there is no condemnation in Christ. And the cool thing is Paul doesn't leave us there because I realize that this is a pretty depressing and pretty like heavy place to be, right, in verse 24. But check this out. In verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I can imagine Paul writing this, I would imagine that he is like screaming this at the top of his lungs. That he is just so thankful but so excited that he has been rescued by Jesus. And he says, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And this is such good news. It's such good news for us because God saves us and rescues us from our wretchedness and walks with us in this journey to become more and more like him. And he knows that this journey is messy, and he knows that we'll make a lot of mistakes along the way. And if you keep reading in chapter 8, not only does it tell us that there's no condemnation in Christ, but it tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing you could say, nothing you could do, nothing you could think. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And sometimes we forget that. We forget that. And that's good news to me because I mess up a lot, like a lot, especially like I say things without thinking, and a lot of, especially when I'm upset, right? Nobody else? Okay, perfect. So I like say all these things and immediately after it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, no! Like, come back, come back. And I wish, I so wish I could take it back, right? I do this all the time. You can ask my husband. But <laughs> I do this all the time, and so I'm so glad that, like, nothing changes how God sees me, or nothing changes his love for me. Nothing can separate me from that, and that there's no shame, there's no condemnation in Christ. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter how big we think our failure is, nothing can separate us from Christ. Tonight, as we... Um, kind of wrap up, I want to share a story of, of just kind of what I've been walking through in the past, um, past few weeks. And if I'm going to be completely honest, it's been rough. It's been really rough. I felt like my emotions were out of control. I felt like I was out of control. I was short with my kids. I was I, like, with my husband. I was saying things I wish I could take back. I was angry all the time. I felt like I was angry. I blamed it on um, distance learning, 
but <laughs> but um, but I, I just, it was junk, man. I just felt so junk. And one day my husband told me, go take some time to be by yourself. Now, when you're already in this junk place and someone tells you, go take time for yourself, I felt like I was being put in time out. And I was like, bruh, for real? Like, don't tell me to go take time for myself. Like, I don't need to hear that. But I did. And um, so I took my journal and I pouted and I headed out. And so I went to, um, I went to a beach park and I sat there and I poured my heart out to Jesus. I wrote, I wrote in my journal. I, it was messy. It was ugly. I wrote my frustrations. I wrote my anger. I wrote everything, my disappointments, my hurt, my anxiety. I wrote everything out. I cried, and I sat there. I must have looked crazy. And um, as I sat there, after I finished writing, the Lord reminded me, um, because as I, sorry, as I was writing, I, I even remember writing, like, I hate who I am. I hate who I'm becoming. I hate what is happening. Like, I hate this. And the Lord reminded me, the things you've said, the things you've done, not you. It's not you. It's not who you are. It's simply what you've done. And he reminded me how much he loved me and that nothing could change that. No matter if it had been months that I haven't talked to him, no matter if I was mad at him, no matter if I swore at him, no matter if I, whatever, it didn't matter. It didn't change his love for me. It didn't change how he saw me. He reminded me that I am his daughter, that I am loved and adored by him, no matter what, no matter what. And then before I left, he had me go to the water. And I went to the water and I put my feet in. I just let the water run over my feet, in and out, in and out. I took a video to remind myself because I felt like the Lord said, just like this water is constantly running in and out, it's constantly moving, it's constantly washing over you, so is my grace. Constantly washing over you. Constantly washing over you. As I was writing this message, I realized I was walking through exactly Romans 7. This battle, this internal war is what I walked through. And I share these things not to bring us down and not to look and see how wretched we are, but I share this so you can write this in your notes, is because the more we recognize our wretchedness, the greater our gratitude because we realize it's not about me it's not about me it's all about him and he is so good he's so good and when I left the park that day not only did I feel at peace but I couldn't help be so grateful for what the Lord had done and what he continues to do in my life I don't think I will ever fully understand how he can love me so much. But when I think about it, 
it causes me to be in awe of my Savior. That even in my wretchedness, even at my worst, even when I hurt people, even when I say things I wish I could take back, even when I, I think things that I probably shouldn't, he still loves me. He still loves me, and he still loves you. And he will always, always love us. And he will always, always choose us. Recognizing our wretchedness opens our eyes to how much we need a savior. But it also causes us to be so grateful. So grateful. Now there's a few uh, reflection questions that'll come up in the chat. It's one... How does it make you feel knowing that there is no condemnation, there's no shame in Christ? No matter what, there is no shame. How does that make you feel? The second question is this. How is your life different because of his grace? Or how has God's grace changed your life? How has it changed your life? And I want to challenge us this week. I want us to, um, I wrote down an action step, actually. Instead of a third reflection question, there's an action step for us. And it's this. Would you take some time this week, and would you reflect and give, give God thanks for his grace over your life? Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget his grace. Sometimes we forget his goodness. And we forget that we need saving every single day. And so tonight, my heart and my prayer in sharing tonight is not that we would leave watching service and we would feel terrible about ourselves, but that we would be so grateful for our Savior so thankful for what he has done and for who he is that he never leaves us no matter the tantrums we throw and I throw plenty of them no matter that he loves us he loves us would you bow your heads with me tonight you know before we pray Before we pray, I felt, um, I felt that there were some of us that needed reminding. Some of, there may be some of you that need reminding that, hey, no matter what, no matter what you think, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how long you haven't talked to him or you're mad at him, no matter what, he loves you. He loves you. You don't have to change. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be better. He simply loves you as you are. Some of you need to be reminded that there's nothing you could do that would change what he thinks of you. And he thinks the world of you. He thinks the world of you. He sees you as his child who he is absolutely crazy about. 
who he absolutely adores and thinks the world of. That's who you are to him. That's who you are. And as we pray tonight, if you needed that reminder, would you do something with me? Would you just take a deep breath in and let the truth of those statements, let the truth of God's love and his grace just flood you. From the top of your head to the soles of your feet, would you just breathe in that truth and let it wash over you? God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that even, even how we are, even um, at our worst, even, God, when we're at the bottom, when we're throwing tantrums, when we're yelling, when we're screaming, when we're upset, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we're hurt, when we're disappointed, God, you love us. There's nothing that changes that. Nothing. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that nothing ever changes how you see us or how you feel about us. Nothing changes that. Thank you that your love and your grace and your forgiveness isn't dependent on me, but it's dependent on your goodness. You love me and you forgive me and you're gracious with us because you are good. Because that's who you are, because that's your character. And God, we thank you for that. We praise you tonight for that, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace over our lives. Thank you for flooding us with your grace and for washing us with your forgiveness. Thank you for your love that is always there. Father, in the times when we need it most, would you remind us what you think of us? Would you remind us how you see us? Would you remind us how much you love us, Lord? My God, tonight we thank you. We thank you for who you are. And we love you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.